As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. Andrew Lincoln says, This is a great text. For people who are contemplating resolutions, who are contemplating a change in behavior, because this changeover from chapter 2 to 3 is about making significant change. The preceding chapter is all about things you're supposed to leave behind as a follower of Christ. You have verbs like put off, put away, put to death. In this passage, it's about clothing. And again, clothing. What you put on after all the things you've put off. Let's take a look. It begins by saying, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Today with computers, scholars can feed words into computers and see where else those words occur. Uh, Not where each of those words may occur, but is there a place where all of them appear together? And surely enough, there is in the Torah. Those very special first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, of course, those books were written in Hebrew. But after the time of Alexander the Great, when he and his Greek armies had swept around the Mediterranean world, there came a time when more Jews could read write and speak Greek than could read, write and speak Hebrew. And so they translated their scriptures into Greek, that translation called the Septuagint. So we can compare the Greek of the Septuagint with the Greek of the Christian scriptures. And you can find those passages where whole segments are contained in both. In this case, these exact words in the Greek Septuagint are found in the Torah, and they're alluding to Israel, to the Jews, to the Israelites. You are a people chosen by God. Holy, meaning set apart. You're not supposed to act like all of them. They have multiple gods. They are heathen. They are pagan. You know there's only one God. You are to act the way that one God will teach you how to act. And then it calls them beloved. And the Greek word here is agapaitos. It comes from the same root as agape. I usually translate that for you as a willingness to put yourself out for the well-being of another. In that case, then, this would mean that there is only one true God 
And he's willing to put himself out for your well-being to birthing a baby in Bethlehem of Judea to raising up a teacher, preacher, healer, worker of miracles, one who would go all the way to death on a cross to show how far God was willing to put Himself out for your and my well-being, one for whom God would raise Him from the dead. Hmm? Chosen, holy, much beloved. Friday night, Gail and I were looking at the TV guide to see what we might watch. Almost everything was rerun. We'd had about all of Charlie Brown's Christmas we could take by that time. Uh, More than enough how the Grinch stole Christmas by that time. So we went 180 degrees and turned to Channel 50 where they had a special program called San Quentin Prison Extended Stay. A television crew had been allowed inside San Quentin Prison in California for four years. And this documentary had been made. We found it very interesting. We thought we'd maybe watch 15 minutes. We watched three hours. From 7 o'clock until 10 o'clock Friday evening, we watched this, this documentary. We got to know the warden fairly well. We got to know several of the guards, male and female, fairly well. We got to know some of the convicts, the inmates, the prisoners there, those incarcerated. We were told that more than 5,000 people are incarcerated at San Quentin. That every day, roughly 150 get paroled and 150 new ones are brought in. Every day, 365 days of the year. We were shown some of the reasons why these particular people are in prison. More than 30% of them are there because of drugs, either using, purchasing, being caught with, under the influence of, or selling to somebody else. Drug offenses. They showed us different segments of the prison. Uh, On the diagram, it would lift up one segment, and then they would spend the next 30 minutes in that building, and then another segment, and they'd spend 30 minutes of our time in that building, and so on. It was amazing how many of them talked about never coming back to San Quentin. Never. In fact, we were told more than 70% do come back again and again and again. Penalty added on to penalty. One young man was there who's now been sentenced to 575 years. There was one rather handsome young man who talked about his three-year-old son. How he grew up without a father. His father just wasn't there, was never a part of his life. And how he really wanted to be a part of this little boy's life, to be a father to him. He just had 70 days to go before he would be paroled. He was counting them down, 70 days. And then during his free time, he went on on to the basketball court. There was one other guy. They were playing one-on-one basketball and one thought the other had pushed him a little harder than he should and he punched and the other punched back and that's another year. That's another year. You hurt another prisoner and you'll do an additional 360 days is what he was told. So your 70 has suddenly jumped 360 more days. 
we were told again and again, as we heard these persons told, uh, you see, you're going to have to change the way you're living or you're going to come back here. If you do the same old things the same old way, you'll get the same old results and you'll be back here. You've got to leave that behind and that behind and that behind and put on a different kind of behavior. Weekly, I get the New Yorker magazine. I like the cartoons. Lots of other people do. Cartoons have been bound into big coffee table kind of books this big, New Yorker cartoons. There was one just after Thanksgiving. Sometimes you look at these cartoons and they're funny because they're not funny. They're very insightful. This one had a woman standing at the foot of the bed, a man sitting on the foot of the bed. There was a suitcase on the floor there. Didn't tell you if she's leaving or if she's just come back. If he's leaving or he's just come back. All you have, her words to him. I don't want your apology. I just want you to be sorry. That isn't funny, is it? It isn't funny. No, I would suspect not intended to be funny. I don't want to hear words. I think change could come if you were genuinely sorry. The Hebrew word for repentance, remember, has to do with turning. If you're really sorry, there's a chance you're willing to be turned and sent in a different, better direction. Do you know yourself chosen? Holy, much beloved. Number two, clothe yourself. If you put off these undesirable behaviors and attitudes, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading Newsweek magazine one night. It wasn't one of my religious publications that I subscribe to. Newsweek magazine. And here was an article titled, Stuff is Not Salvation. Anna Quinlan is a regular writer, contributor to Newsweek. Uh, she writes a lot of things I like, few I don't agree with so much. But, gee, with a title like that, Stuff is Not Our Salvation, I read that one for sure. She began by describing what happened the morning after Thanksgiving in Stream Valley, New York. A Walmart store had sent circulars all over the community telling about the great sale they were going to have that morning after Thanksgiving. Hundreds of people had gathered at the front doors and when the Walmart employee opened the doors, they knocked him down and trampled over him till he died. And Anna Quinlan said, how did we get here? How did we get to this point? That getting more stuff is important enough that we trample somebody to death. She said, I remember my father, who grew up in the Great Depression, telling me about Christmases when he was a boy. That he thought it was wonderful if he got an orange. He thought it was wonderful the next year if he got an apple, if he got a handful of nuts. He thought it was wonderful. How have we come to this, she said, that our stuff, 
takes on such importance. When I read that this Walmart employee had been stomped to death, I walked around my own house saying, did I need that? What made me want that? Why did I spend so much for that? Do I really want all of this? And then she said, let me give you a little test. Suppose you were at home alone and your fire detector goes off and you've got about two minutes to get out of the house. What would you take with you? What would you take? How are we clothing ourselves? How are we clothing ourselves? With humility? With patience? With gentleness? With kindness? Number three. Third thing I underlined here is, and then clothe all of that with agape. It holds everything together. A different rendering might be, well, now that you put on your pants and your shirt and your shoes, put on your overcoat. And your overcoat is love. Covering everything else, holding everything else close to you, warmly to you, is agape. It is love. I read an article recently written by Cliff Snyder. Cliff lives in North Point, North Carolina. Uh, High Point, North Carolina. Uh, he was saying that from the time he can remember, he was overweight. He said, when I was a little bitty boy, I was overweight. Uh, people always pointed out the fact that I was overweight, called me bad names. Uh, I got a little bigger, wanted to play violin. I was never better than third chair. I decided at one point I wanted to play football. I was never better than third team. And then when I was 15, my father was killed in an auto accident. Uh, he wasn't driving. He wasn't responsible. Another car crossed a median, hit the car my father was riding in. He was killed. My parents had always taken me to the Methodist church in High Point, he said. They'd always had me in Sunday school. Sunday nights when I got big enough, I was in MYF, the Methodist Youth Fellowship Group. Some of my best friends were there in church and Sunday school. Some of the kindest people I knew were there. And as my mother and I came to that first Christmas without my dad, without her husband, they were trying really hard to be kind to us. Our youth director said that on one of those nights before Christmas, we were going to go to a family shelter there in our community where really needy people were being housed and that we were going to give presents to all the children. Uh, the youth director got me off to one side so that no one else could hear and said, Cliff, I think you're the very one to be our Santa Claus. You just have this wonderful, warm personality. He said, I knew he picked me because I was fat. I was overweight. Need no padding for that red suit for me. But he asked me kindly, and I said I would do it. But let me tell you, that night when I put on that big white beard 
And I put on that red suit from head to toe. And I put that cap on my head. I became Santa Claus. And as these poor children came to me, I knew how to be kind. I knew how to care. I knew how to feel. It was wonderful. The next year I volunteered to be Santa Claus. And the next year, and my senior year, I volunteered to be Santa Claus. I took over the print shop that my father had run all those years in High Point. I got married. Couldn't get out of my mind how happy I had been being Santa Claus. One year I said to my wife, you know, I've read that there's a Santa Claus school up in Michigan. She said, that's a long way from here. I know, he said, but I'd like to be a really good Santa Claus. She agreed, okay, maybe I should do that. So I went to Michigan. And for a whole week I was taught how to be an even better Santa Claus. That growing your own beard was far better. If you would bleach it, far better. If you would pad yourself well, have a really good-looking suit, really good-looking hat, and then how you're supposed to be really happy, ho, 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 and be really kind. Don't frighten the children. Be soft and careful, sympathetic. Maybe carry a little book and write down children's names as you ask them so they could tell you were taking this seriously and your name is and write it down in the little book. I became a better Santa. Fifty times a year I was asked to be Santa. Fifty times. Started getting ready months ahead. I really grew big beards. I had a black one at first, but I could bleach it. And then less and less needed to be bleached. And I really have a beautiful white one now, he said. And I know how to care about children. I care. I ask each one. Said I had a little girl one year sat on my knee. You could sort of tell she didn't know what to think about me. She was sort of at that age where she was wondering... How can one person go to every house in the world on one night? And I said, Rebecca, have you had a good year? And she turned around and said to her mom, It is Santa Claus. He knew my name. It was on her headband, he said. <laughs> but neither her mother nor I reminded her of that fact. He said one year, I saw a little boy sort of standing back. And every time it was his turn, he'd push another kid ahead of him and he'd step back. And he'd push the next one ahead and he'd step back. And finally, I motioned to him. And I must have had that bright twinkle in my eye because he came. And I lifted him up onto my knee and I said, What's your name? I want to get this down. And I wrote his name in my little book and I said, what can I do for you? And he said, make the kids quit teasing me. Would you make the kids quit teasing me? And he said, I can do something about that. I'm going to ask God to change their hearts. I'm going to ask God to help them be kind. Because you see, he said, I know it's really about God and how God so loved us that he sent his son. I said to this little boy, I'm going to ask God to do that. You see, what I've really learned, Cliff wrote, is that every time I'm doing the best I can 
to bring joy to somebody else, I'm at my very best. Number four. Three times this author talks about giving thanks. He does. Right there in verse 15. And be thankful. Verse 16. With gratitude. Verse 17. Giving thanks to God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Gratitude. Hmm? Gratitude. Did you see Jeff Japinga's story? <clears throat> Jeff said, I have to travel a fair amount of the time. And it was a late Friday. And I had one more plane ride to get home. I knew what the airport was going to be like. Late Friday afternoon, everybody's trying to get on a plane. I got there in plenty of time. The maze was filled with people trying to get through security. I finally made it through. I still had plenty of time. I hurried on down to my plane. I like an aisle seat, he said. So I had an aisle seat. I sat down in my seat. The two on the inside of me were still empty. And now I started wondering, who will sit by me? Who will sit by me? We probably won't push back for at least 30-minute delay. We'll probably sit out there beside the takeoff runway at least an hour waiting for our turn. And I'll be at least an hour and a half late getting home. And here they came. A young mother with a little boy. Maybe six, maybe seven. When she pointed over beyond me, I stood up and let them in. This kid was wired. He had his boarding pass in his hand, and it had his name printed on it, and he was thrilled. His boarding pass was great, he said. This was great. His mother pushed up the little blind so that he could see out the window, and boy, this was great. Look how many planes he could see out the window. When we pushed back 30 minutes late and sat an hour out there waiting for our turn to take off, he thought that was great because on a parallel runway, he could see plane after plane taking off. Bigger ones, smaller ones, bigger ones, smaller ones. Every one of them was great. When we finally got into the air, he thought the pretzels were great. <laughs> and his mother who must have seen the look in my face, leaned over and said quietly, I hope you can forgive Ben. This is his first flight. He isn't old enough to take everything for granted the way you and I do. 